Welcome to the Daily Journal's fourth and final episode of our Supreme Court October Term 2019 preview series. On today's episode, we'll regard two cases where plaintiffs allege discrimination, in one case on the basis of religion and on the other on the basis of sex. The religious discrimination case is Espinoza versus Montana, and it's a logical next chapter in the High Court's Free Exercise and Establishment Clause jurisprudence because, like a case rendered two years ago, it deals with state funds going to religious schools. That earlier case you'll probably recall, Trinity Lutheran, in it the court said Missouri could not block religious schools from a state grant program that funded playground improvements, but this term's case involves Montana state funds flowing directly to private religious schools' bottom lines via taxpayer-backed scholarships. Our first two guests, Michigan State University College of Law's Frank Ravitch and Chapman University School of Law's Anthony Queso, will present opposing views on the merits of that appeal. And then we'll dive into one of the term's most prominent civil rights-related appeals, a suit by a transgender funeral home employee claiming her employer fired her because of her gender transition in violation of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. As to that appeal, we'll hear from UCLA School of Law's Adam Romero and from the National Center for Law and Policy's Dean Broyles. Before welcoming our guests, though, just one quick and usual reminder that listening to this podcast is a great way to keep up on your continuing legal education credits. For every episode you tune into, you can claim one hour of California participatory credit. It's easy to do. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears to take that and tender the almost nominal fee, and that hour of credit is yours. Okay, uh, Michigan State School of Law Professor Frank Ravitch argues that the Montana tax break program being reviewed by the high court would divert significant taxpayer funds to religious schools in the state. The Montana Supreme Court found likewise and struck down the program as violating a provision in the state's constitution. Ravitch argues that SCOTUS should leave the Montana court's decision interpreting its own constitution in place. But challengers argue that the state constitution provision itself violates the free exercise clause because, among other reasons, it may have initially been instituted based on anti-religious prejudice. Those challengers also argue that a tax-funded scholarship program that excludes students of religious schools would likewise violate the free exercise clause. Professor Ravitch joins me now. Professor, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so at the outset, maybe we could quickly and in, in fairly broad strokes just describe the sort of program we're talking about here. It is definitely framed differently in the opposing briefs. Uh, and so I'd be curious to um, have you describe, as you see it, what exactly is being a challenge here that the tax provision um, in, in Montana, and I suppose uh, how the, the other relevant provision, Montana's constitutional uh, no-aid uh, provision. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, the Montana tax program itself is a little bit unusual, but it, as a practical matter, the key is that it allowed $150 tax credit for donations that ultimately made their way to private schools and, and the vast majority of the private schools were religious private schools. So that's why it it came into contact with the Montana State Constitution's no aid provision, because it, 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 while it's a little bit different than the sort of the ordinary state tax credit program, the the end result is somewhat similar. And the Montana Constitution's no aid provision is, is a really fascinating situation because, you know, there are constitutional no aid provisions that are what are referred to as Blaine amendments. And Blaine amendments are, we call them baby Blaines when they're state uh, constitutional amendments. And essentially, there was this constitutional amendment proposed by Senator Senator James Blaine, and it was an amendment proposed to the United States Constitution back in the latter part of the 19th century, and it failed. It was not it was not passed in the U.S., but a number of states adopted very similar and in some cases almost identical provisions. The the problem there was that a significant driving force behind the Blaine Amendment, both at the federal and was a pervasive anti-Catholicism. And so a lot of state Blaine amendments are highly problematic because of that. Uh, And there's some argument being made here that Montana's is a Blaine amendment. I actually disagree with that. I think that the Montana Constitutional Convention in 1972, which reenacted an older amendment that may have originally been a Blaine Amendment. If you look at the um, discussion surrounding the Montana Constitutional Convention's reenactment of the no-aid provision, it 
none of it centered around anti-Catholicism or any sort of anti-religious sentiment whatsoever. What what the 1972 convention's focus was on was really on on protecting public education, and they weren't thinking about it as. Re- I mean, the vast majority of religious schools in in most parts of uh, of private schools in most parts of the country are religious, and so the Montana Constitution's no aid provision, while they reenacted the one that specified religious schools, which might have had a Blaine basis to it. There, there's simply no evidence of that in the 1972 Montana Constitution. So, the, but the idea was that this no aid provision ran in and violation uh, of the I'm sorry the tax credit program was in violation of the Constitution's no aid provision. And then the lawsuit alleges that the no aid provision is a Blaine amendment. There may be other problems with the no aid provision, but I I, I think the argument that it's a Blaine amendment, given the 1972 reenactment, is is really a, a bit of a stretch. Although I don't think the court's going to necessarily see it that way. Right. You know, and we'll get a bit more into that in, in just a second. But in, in, in terms of a couple of recent Supreme Court cases that uh, provide some helpful context in, in thinking about how this case might shake out, um, in you know, when you hear about free exercise challenges relating to public funds going to private religious schools. The maybe first case that comes to mind is the recent Trinity Lutheran case where the uh, free exercise plaintiffs, the, the court cited for them and, and said that the state program there couldn't um, withhold funds from a, a religious school. But the funds there were used for a pretty sort of minor and sort of incidental purpose playground resurfacing. Um, so if you go back maybe 10 further years or so, you have a, a, a different case that sounds a lot more like this one, Locke v. Davey, where the state funds were uh, used for scholarships or were put towards individual students' education. And, and, and there the court did go down the other way, saying that those funds couldn't be used for pursuing a, a religious-type degree, like in, I think, devotional theology was the one the plaintiff there wanted to use. So I suppose, uh, help me to sketch out those two cases. And, and you know, to, to some extent, it seems like that Locke case, case seems more on point, but certainly the one that uh, folks are hoping or the plaintiffs are hoping the court will refer to more is the Trinity Lutheran case, right? Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. Those those two cases, um, I think, really go to the core of this issue. And if you look at, you know, we'll start with Locke v. Davey. You know, in Locke, you had um, a scholarship that was available in uh, at the state level, and the person who received the scholarship was going to study devotional theology. And under the state's uh, it was a different provision. It was not a no-aid provision uh, in the state constitution. It was essentially the state's establishment clause. And then the state Supreme Court held, look, you know, um, we can deny access and, and to uh, use these scholarships for devotional theology. You can use it for anything else, and you can use it at religious institutions. But you can't, you can't use it uh, to study devotional theology. And, and that case could be used to support the state in the Espinoza case, the argument would be that even if schools and states may fund, um, you know, things like vouchers, which the court has allowed, must states do that if they open up a program more broadly? Do they have to include include religious uh, primary and secondary schools? And I think the play in the joints concept from Locke is very helpful to the state. The facts in Locke are not as helpful because we're dealing with a statewide scholarship that could be used at religious institutions. And the, the, the key question was, it just couldn't be used for people studying devotional theology, i.e. to become clergy. Um, so that's a way in which the current court might be able to distinguish Locke factually. With that said, I think the play in the joints concept is quite helpful to the state of Montana because it, it not only reflects the idea that, that there there is room within the federal free exercise clause for state establishment and no aid concerns, but it also, I think, reflects the, the idea that there is a federalism underlying a lot of this, right? States have a right to determine whether they're going to use their taxpayer dollars to support religious education. And while the law court acknowledges they can do that, it says they, they don't have to do that. But it doesn't, it doesn't answer the question outside of the limited facts in that case. So the concept is useful. Trinity Lutheran, it, it, it's somewhat 
similar in, in that it, as you said, it dealt with program uh, with playground resurfacing. It was a program in the state of Missouri involving um, essentially recycled rubber that were used as it was used as playground chips. And uh, a, a Lutheran school was denied access to this program based on a state no aid provision. And the court held that you can't deny access to non-religious aid in in giving. In, in, in determining who's going to get money or state grant, you know, in this case, playground chip. But the key there is they found that this was discriminatory. To exclude religious entities simply because the religious entities is discriminatory. But there's the footnote three in that opinion, I think is very important, where they said, look, this decision is limited to non-religious things, i.e. Play, playground chips. We're not talking necessarily about school aid and things like that. And so, you know, the question in Trinity Lutheran is how far does the court want to take that non-discrimination concept? Do they want to apply it in the no aid context in a way that would further limit Locke v. Davey? Uh, and I argue would create a form of structural discrimination against religious minorities and dissenters who may not be able to attend these, uh, ironically, in trying to prevent discrimination against religious entities in a, in a school choice context, they, they may create discrimination against religious minorities as a structural matter because most religious private schools are from just a very small number of, of religions. So, you know, the, the, the question is how far do they want to take Trinity Lutheran? Footnote three could be used to limit it, but it, it could also be ignored. And the question is, with the current makeup of the court, do they look at Locke and Trinity and say, well, there, you know, there's still some play in the joints we can work with here in Montana, or do they say that Trinity essentially limits Locke to its facts and Trinity Lutheran and, and you know, then overturn the Montana Supreme Court? In terms of, as, as you described the two cases, it, it sort of sounds like there are threads from both of them, Locke and Trinity Lutheran, that the court could, could pull into this case to be useful. In particular, I guess, as to the Trinity Lutheran case, the notion that aid would go from the public uh, coffers to to some private schools, but not to religious schools or some schools, but not religious schools, that, that was part of the theme of the argument here that this uh, scholarship tax credit could be used um, for sort of vouchers for, for private schools. But if you wanted to use it for a religious school, you couldn't. But that, that argument seems like it's undercut a bit by the fact that, as you've written, uh, you know, the Montana Supreme Court here struck down the program sort of overall. So we don't have a situation where money is going to folks that want to use it to for different schools or uh, private non-religious schools, um, but not to religious schools. So how does, uh, does, does that ruling factor into the way the court might think about this challenge? It may be a great way for the court to really avoid the, the the somewhat problematic nexus between Trinity and Locke v. Davey, because the Montana Supreme Court essentially struck down the entire program, not just as it applies to religious schools, as you said. So, you know, if you look at the Montana Supreme Court opinion, this program simply is gone. It doesn't apply to non-religious private schools. It doesn't apply to religious private schools. Um, it's simply unconstitutional as a whole. I think what what the the um, the petitioners are arguing here is that, well, yeah, but that's that's all a result of the fact that having this program applied to religious schools is problematic uh, under the state constitution, and therefore the issue doesn't go away because the Montana Supreme Court decision relied very heavily on the fact that the program violated the no aid provision, but then voided the entire program for other for other reasons. I, I, and I think that's an argument that they'll that that they'll continue to make. But if the court really were to just take this and look at it based on what the Montana Supreme Court said, they they might be able to bring in another recent decision that followed Trinity Lutheran, um, and which seemed very much limited to its facts, but the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, where the court basically found that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had engaged in anti-religious discrimination. Uh, and they could look at the Montana Supreme Court decision and say, that that didn't happen here. It's very clear the Montana Supreme Court decision has no evidence of anti-religious animus or anything like it, and say, so this is not like Masterpiece Cake Shop and um, the Montana Supreme Court voided the entire program. Uh, and so, you know, Trinity Lutheran really doesn't apply here because, there, as you said, there's no discrimination that differentiates between religious and non-religious entities. But the petitioner's point is that the, the application of the no aid provision was the key, the key 
problem that that led to this law being struck down, and therefore it is distinguishing based on religion. And so they would argue that 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 you can't rely on the face of uh, uh, on the face of what the Montana Supreme Court did. You know, I happen to agree with the Montana Supreme. I mean, I th- I think that the that the Montana Supreme Court decision should be upheld for a variety of reasons, um, particularly because this sort of a ruling could lead to states having to fund voucher programs. If uh, for religious private schools and in states like Maine, where where they have uh, funding for uh, non-religious private schools, because in some areas it's so remote, there are no public schools, you know, that could become a huge problem. And, you know, I think that that vouchers and even limited aid like this can lead to systematic discrimination against religious minorities. You know, most religious schools that are able to take voucher students or that really benefit a lot from $150 or a few hundred dollars in tax deductions. These are schools that have much lower tuition, which means they're heavily subsidized, and they're usually from majoritarian denominations or denominations that have very large school systems, and they're almost always Christian. And so for religious minorities, including Christian religious minorities, these sorts of, of draining money from the public schools, and, and they call it school choice, but for religious minorities, it very frequently leads to the opposite, which is no choice. There, there's nowhere to go. Your public schools have now been drained of money if this is used to uphold a voucher program, and your, and, and your religious school options would violate your, your religion. So the, ultimately, that's the ball game here. You know, the, the game here is more about vouchers than it is about, you know, or really big tax deductions than it is about the specific Montana tax deduction. So it, it would be, you know, if the Supreme Court said, well, this case really was about the no aid provision, it opens that whole can of worms. If it relies on the Montana Supreme Court decision and says, look, this decision doesn't distinguish, that's a good way to get rid of it without opening that can of worms. But the question is whether this court will want to or choose to open that can of worms. Yeah. And that would just be my, I guess, last question is it, w- with the court as it's presently constituted, one might be inclined to think that it, that it would be willing to maybe make a, uh, you know, a fairly broad type, um, ruling in this case that, that, that brings in the, you know, sort of the, the full question as to the application of this no aid provision and, and how perhaps even in other states they, they can be applied and how they might have historic, uh, religious animus in them. As you mentioned, I mean, do you think that, uh, that's the sort of ruling we, we might be looking for, uh, for this term? Yeah. And, you know, I think what I expect in this decision is, is that something exactly along those lines where they're they're going to find in favor of the school choice advocates again i find that term to be very very troubling because I, again i don't think it's school choice for religious minorities i think it puts religious minorities and dissenters in a terrible situation but I, I do think that this court very likely may lean in that direction and trinity lutheran would certainly give it an adequate basis to do so if it chooses to overlook footnote three you know, and again, the ramifications for this, unless they really limit it, are huge because it would apply to voucher programs. The other, I think the other thing to consider, though, is the possibility of Justice Roberts, um, or, or, or maybe a justice we, we're, we're not expecting, you know, looking at the Locke v. Davy play in the joints also through a federalism lens, in which case what you might see is you know, a decision that very narrowly defers to the state Supreme Court opinion and to the state concerns here. Um, I, I, I think that would be a much preferable outcome, but I, I, I quite honestly don't expect it. I think, though, the fact that the Montana provision, at least as reenacted in 1972, is not a baby Blaine, despite the, the very strong arguments being asserted on the other side that it, that the 1885 provision was, I mean, the, the reality is that would be a good reason to also treat this case as not the case to decide the Blaine Amendment issue. We'll, we'll wait and find out here down, down the road this term, but for now we'll leave it there. Professor Frank Ravitch from uh, Michigan State University College of Law, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Professor Anthony Queso from Chapman University Fowler School of Law joins me next. He's an amicus 
in the Espinoza Appeal. This brief submitted on behalf of the Claremont Institute's Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence. It argues that under the Free Exercise Clause, the state can't discriminate on the basis of religion when it comes to generally available tax-funded programs. Joins me now, Professor Queso. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Maybe first to start out, could you describe a bit how your your amicus brief goes about sort of framing the case here, the Espinoza uh, versus Montana Department of Revenue case, uh, and how you think folks should should go about thinking about it? We see this case as basically a free exercise case. It attacks the idea of these state constitutional, what we call mini Blaine amendments. Congressman Blaine in the late 1800s tried to insert into the U.S. Constitution, a provision to outlaw aid to what he called sectarian schools. The court has noted that that sort of code language for Catholic schools or parochial schools. And a lot of states included these, although it wasn't successful at the federal level, a lot of states included these provisions in their own constitution. And in this particular constitution, it's there basically by the requirement of the federal government. When the state came into the union, uh, in part of the, the statute that allowed it to come in required this type of provision in their law that no aid to sectarian schools. So we want us, we want the court to address this idea of the many Blaine amendments and note that you can't have a state provision that discriminates against religious institutions. The benefits available to all generally, it you can't disqualify someone just because they have a religious viewpoint. Actually, our, our other guest speaking about this case on the podcast did mention the idea of the, the mini Blaine amendments. And, and um, he's Professor Frank Ravitch from Michigan State. He, he argued that uh, the, the fact that Montana had, I think, held a, another constitutional convention sort of updating or amending provisions in 1972 at which this provision was reconsidered and sort of readopted, uh, undercut arguments that it, that it did have that sort of uh, potential stain from the, the 19th century uh, upon it. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on that? You might argue that that type of an action may erase the anti-Catholic view that was encapsulated in the original Blaine Amendments and the many Blaine Amendments. The provision still stands, however, as outright discrimination against religious institutions. So in other words, it says, and this was the Montana Supreme Court said it, the Supreme Court struck down the entire state law because it did not discriminate against religious institutions. And so a state cannot adopt a position of hostility towards religion under the Free Exercise Clause. That's our view. And there's also one other piece of your brief I wanted to pull up. So first, as, as some context, that the idea of the Establishment Clause, in your view, um, has some more specific and sort of a, aggressive government action in, in mind as you, you see it, things along the lines of sort of maybe coercive uh, worship service attendance or things along that lines. Am I reading that portion of the brief right? Yes, that, that's exactly right. The Establishment Clause, if you go back and look at the founding, that was all about whether or not, first of all, it was prohibiting the federal government from interfering with existing state establishments. There were still states that had an official establishment of religion. But the second point is that you look back to what an establishment was in England. For instance, you had to belong to the Anglican Church in order to hold a government office. You had to take communion once a year. So on that end, government was forcing you to belong to a particular religious institution. On the other end of it, Parliament actually wrote the prayers that you had to say in the Anglican Church. So you had government coercing the church, too. That's what the Establishment Clause is all about, that it can't coerce you to belong to a religious organization, and government can't coerce the religious organization to pray or uh, pray in a particular way or select specific individuals for ministry. It, the government should stay out of the running of a religious institution. That doesn't mean that the government has to be anti-religious. I mean, that would be totally contrary to the idea that the founders had. They, they, they thought public exercise of religion uh, was a very important part of the, the new uh, government that they were creating. Let's zoom in, I guess, specifically to, to the way in which you argue this program um, sort of penalizes folks for having religious belief or hoping to uh, use the, the benefit towards 
education at, at a religious institution. Um, walk me through, I guess, exactly how that, that argument works. This particular program set up a tax deduction or credit, I can't remember which it was, uh, for contributions to scholarship funds that could be then used for private schools. And you could set, set up a scholarship fund specifically for religious education. So it could be a church-run school. It doesn't matter which church it might have been. The Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, struck that program down specifically because it allowed, it was um, non-discriminatory in its language. It, it allowed these uh, scholarships for uh, religious-run schools. Um, so our argument is that that's an official state position of hostility towards religion. The the Supreme Court would have been fine if it if the state law had excluded religious schools, but the fact that it was not discriminatory was what caused it to be struck down. What do you do with the the, the U.S. Supreme Court precedent, the Locke v. Davy case that sounds a a little bit similar to this one, and and that the court upheld a program in Washington where scholarship funds couldn't be used by the petitioner there towards a, uh, a theology degree? And well, it's a, it's a little more narrow than that, and the court noted in, in Trinity Lutheran the, the narrowness of Locke v. Davy. They said that uh, the state was free to limit the scholarship in, in that case because the individual was not just pursuing a theology degree, but they were pursuing a degree to prepare them to become a minister. So it, it was a more of a ministerial degree that would, would create this, you, you're prepared for this particular job that is a specifically a religious position. And the court said on that very narrow basis, uh, we're going to allow the, the state of Washington to draw the line there. I'm not sure that's a good place to draw the line, but this case doesn't even come close to that. This case is much more like Trinity Lutheran a generally available state benefit that the state Supreme Court struck down because it failed to discriminate against religious institutions. And then as to Trinity Lutheran, I mean, some folks will argue that that case was pretty narrow as well, dealing with, you know, generally available state funds, but used for playground resurfacing, you know, a fairly kind of specific and incidental part of any institution, religious or not. And I think they're is a footnote in there suggesting that perhaps more sort of broader funds going towards the, the spirit or purpose of, say, a religious educational institution might be viewed a little bit differently by the court? Do you have uh, thoughts on that? No, I think that, that footnote was noting the, the narrowness of the holding in Locke v. Davy and why Trinity Lutheran wasn't necessarily overruling it. But Trinity Lutheran stands on a much broader um, history of precedent where we've allowed publicly supported uh, textbooks to go to religious schools. We've allowed uh, publicly supported bus transportation to get kids to a a religious-sponsored school. So Trinity Lutheran is well within that fairly long history of cases that if you have a generally available benefit, the Constitution does not prohibit you under the Establishment Clause, does not prohibit you from making that available to everyone on an equal basis. This case flips it around. So it's not really an Establishment Clause case, although uh, Montana, uh, some of the Supreme Court justices tried to justify it as an Establishment Clause problem. This is much more a question of whether or not the state is permitted to discriminate against religion in the delivery of these generally available benefits. Okay, uh, Professor Anthony Kessel from uh, the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence at Claremont University School of Law. Thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Before moving on to our second case of the episode, a quick reminder that our Verdicts and Settlements section issues every Friday and is a great resource for attorneys hoping to evaluate cases they're working on, see what kind of car crash settled for what, or what sort of verdict in a MedMal case similar to yours was returned. It's also just a good place to keep tabs on some of the biggest cases moving through California state and federal courts. And in addition to all of that, it's a terrific place for you to publish a recent result you are proud of. You publish just about any manner of trial court level disposition, a verdict, settlement, dismissal, summary judgment grant, arbitration award confirmation, 
Submit it to us at www.dailyjournal.com forward slash VNS. That's V and S spelled out, no ampersand. Or you can email it to us at verdicts at dailyjournal.com. Okay, an RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes versus the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. A funeral home is hoping to reverse a Sixth Circuit ruling that it violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act when it fired a transgender woman, Amy Stevens, shortly after she let them know she planned to transition. Stevens was born with biologically male sex characteristics and had presented as a man up until shortly before her firing. Our next guest, Adam Romero, from UCLA's School of Law's Williams Institute, argues in an amicus brief that Title VII protects individuals like Stevens from the sort of adverse employment decision at issue here. That law says employers may not discriminate on the basis of sex, race, color, national origin, and religion. Romero says Harris Funeral Homes firing Stevens because of her status as a transgender woman without question constitutes discrimination based on sex. The employers view it differently, of course, telling justices at the recent oral argument that the employment decision has to do with Stevens' gender identity, not her sex, and also that Congress in 1964, when it wrote Title VII, likely did not have transgender plaintiffs in mind when it used the term sex. Adam Romero joins me now. Adam, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. At the center of this case, of course, is what the term sex in Title VII means. And so one sort of framing of that idea is whether or not Congress in 1964 might have thought that the term was broad enough to reach within its ambit transgender individuals. Um, In your brief, you say that it's not really the framing or it's not really a necessary conception that the court doesn't need to uh, refer or construe the term sex as as particularly broad. And in fact, it sort of used the most limited definition of the term and, and still hold for Amy Stevens here, the employee. Tell me about uh, about that argument. That's right. In in our brief, we agree with Stevens' counsel that the court need only understand the term sex in Title VII to mean um, sex assigned at birth or biological sex, which would uh, reflect understandings of the term in 1964, in order to hold for Amy Stevens. And that's because the question in this case is not so much what sex means, but instead the question is when you discriminate against someone for being transgender, are you impermissibly taking sex as defined as biological sex or sex assigned at birth into account. And the argument is that the employer in this case has impermissibly taken sex into into account because Amy Stevens was fired when she began to present at work as uh, as a woman. And so the discrimination is, is based on that uh, initial assignment of biological sex at birth and not so much the, the transition at the yeah, more recently at, at the workplace? Well, it, it, it's both. Each, each of those provides a different sort of perspective on the same question. Sex in, in both scenarios is still the same. The, the employer is still impermissibly taking sex into account. And I would also just note that the Supreme Court in the Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins case interpreted the term sex in Title VII to prohibit employment discrimination uh, on the basis of stereotypes about gender. And so in addition to the two arguments you just noted, um, Amy Stevens also argues that the employer impermissibly, or when the employer fired her, he impermissibly uh, was motivated by gender stereotypes. And the stereotype at work is that someone with assigned male at birth or with a biologically male at birth uh, will identify as a male throughout, uh, throughout their life. That's, of course, you know, generally true for, for most of us, but it's not true for the more than 1.5 million transgender uh, people in the United States. Okay. Just to mention sort of a, a competing framework here that was posited by the Solicitor General 
an argument who suggested that there's you know, there's sort of two things that we're talking about here and, and they are separate. We're talking about um, sex on the one hand and gender identity on the other, and, and those two are not the same, uh, Solicitor General Francisco argued, and, and so discrimination here based on gender identity is not covered by the term sex in uh, Title VII. Um, is that roughly uh, the, the government's position here? That is, and it's it's not an argument that holds water because it is, for example, uh, religious discrimination to discriminate against someone who has um, converted religion. So say somebody who was Catholic became a Jew, you might not discriminate against a Catholic, you might not discriminate a Jew against a Jew, but if you discriminate against someone for converting, that still is religious discrimination. So similarly here, you if even if there's not discriminate, discrimination against a man or a woman, but you discriminate against someone for transitioning from male to female, that's still sex discrimination. I mean, I think this exchange came up um, also during the, the argument put forward by the Solicitor General, although I could be wrong, it might be when the argument was given uh, by the attorney arguing on behalf of the, the petitioner funeral home. But but Neil Gorsuch mentioned something sort of along the lines that we've been talking about, that there there could be maybe two different questions at issue, but they're sort of close and in- intertwined that maybe we're talking about sex and gender identity both. And so whether or not there are these sort of different and, you know, paired ideas, the fact that there is um, at the heart of the case um, a question about sex is sort of enough to, to rope t- Title Seven in. And so that might be a, a beneficial way of looking at it for a Amy Stevens, did you catch that uh, that exchange? I, I did. I, I think Justice Gorsuch, um, in both the uh, gender identity case that we're talking about now, as well as the um, companion cases related to a similar question about whether Title VII prohibits sexual orientation discrimination as a form of sex discrimination, Justice Gorsuch um, seemed to indicate uh, that he saw very clearly that based on the text of Title VII, that uh, gender identity discrimination is at least in part motivated by sex and therefore should be covered by the statute. What was uh, very interesting in Justice Gorsuch's questions um, was that he said in a close case like this, in his view, about the textual analysis should the court take into account the sort of social impact of its decision, which was a an interesting point that he raised, not, not usually uh, when you do statutory construction, um, it's not normal for a court to take into account the impact the way that Justice Gorsuch was describing it, but nonetheless, he raised the possibility. Yeah, that noted textualist, of course, sort of roping in ideas that go beyond the, the text of the statute. I think when he mentioned that, also he he, he framed it um, as as the potential massive social upheaval that could result from, I, I guess, the court ruling that Title VII would prohibit um, an act like this, the firing of a transgender transgender employee. Um, you know, I'd be curious to ask your, your reaction to, to that line of questioning in relation to an, another argument posed in your brief that affirming the Sixth Circuit here and siding with uh, the employee Amy Stevens would sort of comport with the evolving and, and uh, contemporary views that folks have about this question. Uh, so I suppose, you know, is there some disconnect between what Justice Gorsuch is proposing and what your brief is arguing there? That's exactly right. So Justice Gorsuch posited that that ruling for the transgender employee in this case would lead to some sort of enormous social upheaval, but experience over the past two decades or more shows that that's not going to be the case or hasn't been the case. Since um, the late 1990s, federal courts have held that Title VII or similar sorts of statutes prohibit discrimination against transgender individuals for being transgender as forms of sex discrimination in those places where those rulings exist, there hasn't been some 
huge social upheaval. Similarly, for many years, a a bare minority of states have prohibited gender identity discrimination in employment and other contexts. And similarly, in those states, we haven't seen the sort of social upheaval that uh, Justice Gorsuch was was mentioning. Um, in that regard, I would just note that the Williams Institute recently did a study of public accommodation laws in Massachusetts to see if prohibiting discrimination against transgender people in public accommodations would somehow lead to or could be connected to the the supposed harm that men will enter women's restrooms and and create all kinds of havoc and what this study showed is that there was no no connection whatsoever for um, or no evidence put it differently, there was no evidentiary basis for the argument that protecting transgender people leads to these um, horrible consequences that uh, the other side suggests uh, or argues would would result. Uh, To your point about public opinion, indeed, majorities of Americans support non-discrimination protections against transgender or in favor of transgender people uh, in the workplace. And in fact, a majority of Americans already think that federal law prohibits such discrimination. And so if the Supreme Court were to rule for the transgender employee in this case, it would actually align with uh, what people already think the law is. You mentioned the the, the related issue of, of, of bathrooms. is something that came up a lot at oral argument, and it was brought up by justices across the ideological spectrum, even though this case is not centrally about um, any sort of law or regulation relating to bathroom accommodations, but it, it almost, I mean, it didn't dominate the conversation, but it certainly a, a good portion of it revolved around that issue. And it seemed like, you know, there was some disagreement between uh, Stevens' attorney, David Cole, and, and the justices as to whether or not that issue merited uh, as much focus as it as it got, because it's not centrally in this case. But the justices suggested that if uh, they held for Miss Stevens, then that case would would come down the pike uh, immediately following, um, along the lines of you know any sort of discrimination of not allowing uh, transgender individuals to use bathrooms uh, according to their gender identity would would violate the law. So I suppose you know what did you make of the the amount of discussion over that issue, and I guess you know how should folks Think about it. How much do you think it, it really does play into to this case, or do you think it's uh, a separable issue? I was not surprised by the focus on the implications of this case for uh, bathrooms, locker rooms, and other sort of sex-segregated spaces or um, settings, because you know the justices are are rightfully thinking about the implications of of their decisions down the road. And as we have, I think, witnessed much of the argument around against protecting transgender people from discrimination is that they will disrupt sex sex segregation altogether, um, whether that's bathrooms or locker rooms or male and female sports teams or, or the like. Um, so it, it wasn't surprising. And as you said, Amy Stevens counsel David Cole tried to you know make clear to the court that they could rule for Amy Stevens in this case without having to decide what let's just call it the sex segregation issue he you know I, I think was not able to steer the conversation away from the sex segregation issue his argument, which I think is is correct, is that ruling for Amy Stevens in this case does not necessarily determine the sex segregation uh, question because there, uh, what he, what David Cole argued and what the Supreme Court has said in earlier cases is that policies uh, that merely distinguish between the sexes don't necessarily rise to 
a form of discrimination that visits an injury recognized by the statute. And so down the road, what the courts will have to grapple with if the Supreme Court rules for Amy Stevens in this case is when there's a sex-segregated policy, is the harm to the transgender person or anyone else claiming a harm, the, is it is the magnitude great enough to violate Title VII? And in that regard, in assessing the harm, the court courts might also take into account other issues. So, for example, in the sports context under Title IX, which prohibits sex discrimination in educational settings, a separate statute, David Cole noted that the court courts could take into account whether allowing transgender people to play on sports teams with the that they identify with so a transgender woman who plays on say a woman's sports team or a transgender man plays on a, a men's sports team the question could be you know does that create some sort of unfair competitive advantage for that person and against uh, women uh, or men. And so that obviously is not determined by, by this particular case and, and is a very, seems to be, I think, a very sort of fact-specific inquiry that is hard to delineate across the board rules. You mentioned that Justice Gorsuch had described this as, as a close case. Um, it did seem like maybe there are some potential swing votes like his that could make this a, a case decided for the employee here. It's hard to know for sure, but do you have any thoughts on whether or not this case could hang in the balance or w- what the outcome might look like? It's unclear unclear based on the argument. I, I will note, based on Justice Gorsuch's questioning, he's clearly grappling with being faithful to his textual analysis, which would lead him to rule for the transgender employee and his concerns about about doing so. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, only asked one question that really didn't sort of tip his, his cards in any way. Um, I will note that the Supreme Court in 1998, in a unanimous decision by Justice Scalia, held that Title VII prohibits same-sex harassment, even though the court said that form of discrimination was assuredly not the principal concern of Congress when it enacted Title VII in 1964. In other words, that in 1964, Congress was not thinking about male-on-male same uh, harassment uh, when they added sex to Title VII, that was a unanimous decision and was faithful to the text of the statute itself. And so that decision really suggests that the court should rule in favor of the LGBT uh, employees in these cases. But, you know, based on the questioning, I think the court is very, at least some members of the court are nervous about what such a ruling uh, would mean, including for religious employers. So uh, Chief Justice Roberts asked a few questions about the impact on religious employers. And of course, that's that question is not presented by this particular case as it now exists. In fact, there was a question of the employer arguing for a exemption from Title VII based on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected, and but that's not before the Supreme Court. So no matter if the Supreme Court rules for the LGBT employees in these cases, I think we'll see a shift in litigation over the question of religious employers' ability to escape the requirements of Title VII when they have a sincere religious belief related to LGBT people. I would just note in terms of my you know, final thoughts about, about this case, what the research shows is that, and I think probably is not surprising, 
is that employment discrimination can be absolutely devastating to someone to whom it occurs. Losing your job can mean losing your livelihood, which can plunge people into poverty or intensified poverty, can result in losing one's house and homelessness, an array of deleterious consequences. And so these cases really do present, um, you know, we get caught up in the law sometimes, but it's we can't forget the actual, I think, people who are at issue in these cases and, and what it means to them to lose jobs that they love and in some ways their ability to contribute to society. I would uh, finally note that Congress, of course, could step in. These cases turn on statutory interpretation, and Congress could amend Title VII and similar federal statutes to make express that they prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. And indeed, the U.S. House of Representatives has passed the Equality Act, which would do just that, but it appears that the Senate won't be taking up uh, that legislation. Um, certainly not a whole lot of uh, legislation going on uh, in that branch at, at the moment, um, but we can leave it there uh, for now. But Adam Romero from the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law. Thanks so much for being on our podcast. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And Dean Broyles filed an amicus brief on the other side of this case. It was filed on behalf of a group of scholars of family and sexuality. The brief emphasizes the argument made by the funeral home before SCOTUS that the decision here dealt with gender identity as opposed to sex. Dean, thanks for being on the podcast. Great to be with you. Uh, your amicus brief here led in, in a way similar to, to the way the Solicitor General did that argument last week, describing sort of separable concepts that are being considered here on the one hand, biological sex, um, on the other hand, gender identity. And I understand that argument to continue then along the lines that the term sex in the 1964 piece of legislation here, the Title VII, refers to that concept and not gender identity. Is is that sort of the, um, the thrust of, of that part of your brief, could you just unspool that, that argument a bit for me? Sure. Um, sex, as defined in, in 1964, w- was added as a category of discrimination like race and, and uh, ethnicity and other categories of discrimination that were popular at that time to really protect women. Um, the idea of, uh, of Title VII, the definition of sex, was to protect women in the workplace from being discriminated against or being treated as less than or different than uh, men uh, who are similarly situated. And so um, the idea of gender identity wasn't really even on the radar screen uh, in, in 1964. And so as we fast forward to the modern era, um, if, if you've seen state statutes or even other federal statutes where they want to talk about things like sexual orientation or gender identity, um, they explicitly reference those as separate from sex um, because it's a different concept. The concept of gender identity is primarily the idea that your your feelings or ideas about your gender can be different than your biological sex or, or what the other side likes to call your sex assigned at birth as if it's not an objective biological reality. And so they're very different concepts, and as a matter of fact, if you look at ENDA, uh, which is a current law before Congress, um, there's an attempt there to uh, add sexual orientation and gender identity to classifications of discrimination in federal law. Now, it hasn't passed Congress, but the, the authors of the law specifically and explicitly listed out sexual orientation and gender identity as a separate category from sex because it fundamentally is. And so the idea here is that the Sixth Circuit, in this case, did not have the right to redefine or insert uh, gender identity and include that in the definition of sex in a, uh, in a way that was not intended by Congress. And so certainly, if Congress wants to add gender identity and sexual orientation to Title VII, uh, they're allowed to do so, but they haven't done so. And so it's 
our view is that it's an unconstitutional power grab for the courts to redefine the statute in a way that wasn't intended by Congress. Now, uh, the way I interpret the core argument on the other side here is that it sort of largely accepts most of what you just said, that the 1964 law probably did not you know, mean to include ideas of, of gender identity, although you know, there's other arguments to be had, I guess, surrounding that. But the, the, but the core argument on the other side is that even sort of accepting that and granting that, um, you can read the term sex in its most narrowly possible construed form here and still have the respondent Amy Stevens prevail on the, the premise that because she was at, at birth assigned uh, the sex of male based on biological characteristics, uh, genitalia, that determined the employment outcome here because had she been assigned female at birth, the um, funeral home would have been been fine with her uh, coming to work and appearing and identifying as a woman. And so, uh, as I understand the argument, that firing decision was based on sex, the biological characteristic form of, of sex. So what's wrong with that argument? Well, I, I'd respond to that in two ways. First of all, that's not what the Sixth Circuit decided. The Sixth Circuit explicitly imported the idea of uh, gender identity to be included in sex. And so, that that's a clever, creative argument that actually took you a while to even explain because it's that creative and clever. But it's still, it's only an issue. That's, you know, her, her biological sex or sex that signs at birth uh, in this case is only an issue um, because uh, Amy Stephen claims to be transgender. In other words, biological male who claims to be a transgender female at this point. And so... They're, they try to cleverly set aside the transgender issue and say we're not really reading uh, gender identity into the statute. But even by creative argument, that's precisely what they're doing. The only reason the sex assigned at birth uh, could even be argued in that context is because Amy Stevens is now presenting as a female, even though biologically he, I would say, is a male. And so it, it's a creative argument, but I think it... it it, it begs the question that actually they were asking for a redefinition, but asking for a redefinition of sex in a creative way where you try to ignore gender identity, even though gender identity is clearly a factual issue at play here. It, it's a distinction without a difference. There's, there's one other thing that I thought came up at an argument that Justice Gorsuch mentioned sort of related to, to this idea of the two ideas being talked about uh, and perhaps being separable, but he described that, you know, even if they, they are separable concepts. I think he made this argument or the suggestion to the Solicitor General that if they're sort of both in the mix, then maybe that's enough to trigger the the protections of, of Title VII, even if there's you know ideas of sex and gender identity, as long as sort of there's some ideas related to sex in there, that that's that's enough. Did you catch that? And I'd be curious to know your thoughts on, on that idea. Yeah, it, w- it was hard to really know where Gorsuch was going with some of his questions and comments, but I- I, I don't I don't think that really holds water, especially if you're going for a textual and originalist approach. Um, con, you know, again, gender identity wasn't on anybody's radar screen statutorily in 1964. As a matter of fact, the law was amended, um, I believe, about 10 to 15 years ago. And again, it wasn't added or explicitly uh, reference, even though gender identity was more of a cultural and social issue at the time. And just, you know, it, that argument's almost like saying, well, it's, you know, it's, it's sex, you know, because of evolving definitions of sex, sex now includes concepts of gender identity and sexual orientation. So therefore, it's close enough to sex to read it into the statute. I, I, I still think that's an illegitimate approach. I think if you're going to recognize new categories of discrimination, that's the job of Congress to do explicitly under the separation of powers in our constitutional system. It's not the job of a court to say, well, that's sex-ish enough now to fit under the category of sex. I mean, that's, that's just an illegitimate use um, and a violation of separation of powers. One other, I think, sort of parallel concept here is the idea of sex-based sort of stereotyping as distinct from what we've been talking about. And and I'd be curious to have you help me unpack what's going on here. As I understand it, the argument from the opposing side is that, you know, part of the 
motivation for the firing decision was based on ideas as to stereotypes as to how uh, men traditionally should present uh, individuals you know assigned male sex at birth should present in in the workplace as you know traditionally masculine and, and wearing clothes traditionally worn by men and so the decision for of Amy Stevens to to wear clothes traditionally worn by women here um, is is what contributed to the decision and, and that sort of relates to the stereotypes that are based on on sex and and so that sort of gets us back to sex-based discrimination I'm not sure if I exactly have that right but um, is is that what's going on and I guess what's the counter argument to that yeah sure they they referred to a a, a case uh, wherein a woman who acted more masculine was looked down and treated differently in the workplace I believe she worked for a um, an accounting firm and uh, you know that the sex-based stereotyping, I think, I think definitely gender or sex stereotyping is involved in this case. But then again, you've got to go back and look at the statute. Title VII talks about sex stereotyping um, or talks about sex being maleness versus femaleness, right? And then even that case, that the case that was cited by, by uh, the opposition as far as supporting a Title VII right to not be stereotyped in the workplace. That was again a, a maleness versus femaleness issue. Okay, and so it's not. I mean, I wouldn't argue that there was not stereotyping in this case because they they wanted this employee that was a biological man who now presented as a female to dress um, according to the the gender, uh, the birth gender, or the birth sex. And so there, there certainly was a stereotyping or belief that certain people should dress certain ways. But again, that, that, that begs the question of, is this really male versus female sex stereotyping, which is forbidden by Title VII and Supreme Court precedent? Or is this uh, male versus transgender female sex-based stereotyping that's not addressed by Title VII? So I, I agree that sex-based stereotyping is an issue that the court has addressed and included in Title, title VII. But again, that's male versus female sex-based stereotyping, not uh, male versus female transgender sex-based stereotyping. So it's a different type. And certainly, if Congress wants to expand Title VII, um, it certainly may do so. But our brief uh, provides sociological reasons as to why that's probably not a good idea uh, culturally going forward. And I was hoping to ask you sort of one question about the the research re- pertaining or presented in your brief uh, about about this issue. It pertains to um, one of the other layers here in the case that there's a high prevalence of discrimination against transgender individuals, as, as cited uh, by the respondent here. And, and your brief gets into to, to some of that. Um, I guess just talk to me a bit about what you describe there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, my, my clients who are sociologists are the experts in, in the sociology, so I, I can't claim any special expertise there. But the, the, the concept, in our brief, we, we acknowledge that there was um, differential treatment and which, you know, some people would call illegitimate discrimination. I mean, the idea, the whole idea of discrimination stepping back is seen as always a negative in our culture today. But, but discrimination actually used to be a good word. It, it's not bad necessarily to choose between two different things as long as they're similarly situated. And so I'm not saying that discrimination against um, LGBT individuals or transgender individuals is a good thing. As a matter of fact, our brief admits that it, it occurs and it's probably a bad thing. But one of the things our brief pointed out is that the, the research that has been done in that area um, really lacks a solid uh, scientific and sociological basis, and that there may have been additional or other factors that contributed to the discrimination or job loss. And our point isn't that there's no discrimination occurring. Our point is that if you're going to study discrimination, it should be studied with valid uh, uh, studies that hold up to science and aren't just ide- ideologically driven. And so that's that's part of the point of our brief, too, is that many of the eminent sociologists who pointed out or asked questions that are different from this 
current status quo in that area, they've been marginalized and attacked and actually some have almost been run out of academia for their for merely asking questions and looking for the truth and looking for facts. And so that's a, the one of the big concerns our brief raises is, hey, if we're all really seeking the truth, let's let's not hurt people who ask good questions or, and seek facts, even if they don't go along with the prevailing ideology. And unfortunately, there's kind of a Maoist approach where we attack, silence, marginalize, and try to shove aside people, uh, including eminent sociologists who've done research in this area, like Lisa Littman and others. Okay, I'd just one last one. I'd be curious to, to get your sort of concluding thoughts on on how last week's arguments went. It, it seemed that the, there are some justices that were pretty clearly not persuadable, but it seemed like maybe at least one, perhaps Neil Gorsuch, might be a, a bit unpredictable here. Um, I'd also be curious to know if you think you know these cases, uh, this one and the case presenting uh, the similar issue, but with um, based on sexual orientation. I'd be curious to know if you think there's a chance they could come down. On, uh, on different sides at all? So, yeah, some of the questions and comments that uh, Gorsuch raised and made were, were, were not necessarily clearly tilting uh, towards a conservative interpretation of Title VII uh, that, that, that is encouraged in our brief. But, but I would say, generally speaking, uh, Justice Gorsuch is a textualist, is a, an originalist, and that's Part of the reason I supported his candidacy to the to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I and I, and I think Article uh, Section uh, 1.8 of the Constitution that deals with the separation of powers is pretty clear that there's a role for the courts and there's a role for Congress, and so I think most moderate to conservative justices on the court, including Gorsuch, would lean towards um, leaving this decision to to the Congress and to the legislature and not judicially kind of grabbing it um, as, as occurred, you know, in the issue of abortion and Roe versus Wade, or it occurred recently in the legalization of same-sex marriage. Um, that's an issue. Those are issues that typically would be left to uh, either the states or, or, or the legislature. And here Congress acted uh, in 1964 and then amended the statute and um, has been asked to amend all of the statutes in, in ENDA, uh, including Title VII, to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And I think that's the way to handle this, is to let Congress do its job and not have the courts abrogate uh, the role of the legislature. Because once once the courts rule on something, it's sometimes difficult for for the people or Congress to weigh in if they make it a, a, a legal issue or even a constitutional issue. And so I think judicial restraint would ca- uh, caution the court to, to weigh in on this in a way that would undermine the Constitution and, and the separation of powers and the right of, of our legislature to act on behalf of the people. Uh, Dean Broyles, president of the National Center for Law and Policy. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. Appreciate it. All right. It's been great to be with you. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Thanks again to all four of my guests, Frank Ravitch, Anthony Queso, Adam Romero, Dean Broyles. Thanks to my production staff here, principally Heinrich Nelson. And thanks to you for tuning in. Don't forget that one hour of California CLE credit can be obtained for having tuned into this podcast. Find it at our website, www.dailyjournal.com. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. 